0: Coming up on this week's Citizens Report, headline hysteria softening suckers for war and yes, the government should do banking. Welcome to the show. It's the 9th of March 2023. I'm Glenn Isherwood and I'm joined today by Citizens Party researcher and writer, Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, Today's program, we are going to uh, cover some pretty serious stuff and uh, uh, quite heavy uh, in terms of confronting material. But before we get into that, um, if you're new to the program, uh, please like share and subscribe to the channel Uh, hit that bell icon so you get notified of new new shows Uh, for those who like the ideas presented on this show um, donate Uh, we ask everyone to support the campaigns go onto our website uh, look for the donate button at the top to support our efforts and finally if you want more details on the show's uh, topics today uh, Go online and uh, hover around the website for a little. You'll get uh, an offer for a free copy of this. The Australian Alert Service, the flagship magazine of the Australian Citizens Party. This is where you get all the, the details. The um, Everything we cover on the show is in more depth there. But uh, Richard, um, on this program we usually start our theme on banking. The, the, su- the first headline or the subject is Banking. However, we're going to have to flip it today because uh, uh, the media has gone so feral and, hyster- and, and uh, the hysterical this week, um, gunning for war. Um, on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, we had headlines such as Red Alert, War Risk Exposed and Australia Must Prepare for Threat of China War uh, and uh, we want to get into what's behind this, um, but it's uh, one of those things that uh, is coming uh, at the 20th anniversary of the war in Iraq, uh, coming up very soon. And Back then in, in 2003, the Citizens Party, then CEC, uh, fought heavily to expose the lies and the agenda behind getting that uh, war started. Uh, we documented the forces around the neoconservatives in the United States, Uh, people like uh, Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld, Richard Perle, John Bolton, Dick Cheney and George Bush. Uh, A war that was created on lying pretext uh, and in in a context where it was stated with the Wolfowitz Doctrine that the US wanted to create a unipolar world where they would not tolerate the rise of any future superpower. They reserve the right to decide which nations um, would be uh, allowed to uh, to function and their regime change would get rid of anyone that they didn't like. Mm. So there's a lot of lessons there, um, you know, over a million dead Iraqis later. And it's also, uh, I wanted to start today um, by uh, playing a few clips from a recent event uh, in Uh, Melbourne here just this week Uh, the artist David Dormino uh, has come to town and he uh, set up in South Bank the statues uh, for uh, bronze statues he made of Ed Snowden Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning and at this event uh, there was many speakers Robert Barwick our research director got to speak but also uh, David McBride and Dean Yates, Um, these clips uh, offer a very, very sobering um, reflection on the Iraq war and still today the injustice that's come from that with Julian Assange. So uh, let's play those clips now. Um, The first one being uh, from David McBride um, on the case of Julian Assange and then the second clip from Dean Yates on uh, what, What was Julian Assange's crime that we're still waiting to get true justice for?
1: To those conservatives out there who say, oh, somehow Assange endangered men and women in uniform, I say this to you. You are a fool. You are an absolute fool because so many good people in uniform were killed
2: by George Bush, John Howard and tony blair and that idiot cheney they killed good soldiers
1: they killed a million people with brown skin who and i hate to say it they matter just as much we need to put tony blair on trial john howard is not a hero he remembered well but if you look back on his legacy i'm afraid to say he's a villain he killed a lot of people he and he sold this country. He started the sale, which was still paying off, of Australia to America. And there is no Australia in foreign policy anymore.
3: I was the Reuters bureau chief in Iraq when an Apache gunship with the call sign Crazy Horse 18 killed 12 men in Baghdad on July 12, 2007. Two of those men were Reuters photographer Nemir Nour Eldeen and Reuters driver Saad Chuck. My staff killed on my watch. Nearly three years later, on April 5, 2010, Julian Assange published video of that attack. The classified footage had been sent to WikiLeaks by US military whistleblower Chelsea Manning. Julian called the video collateral murder. It shocked millions of people around the world. Collateral murder connects me to Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning by an invisible thread. Namir and Said would have been forgotten statistics of that Iraq war if not for them. That tape, the most controversial in the history of war, will keep the names of my dead colleagues alive forever. But rather than celebrated for his journalistic and publishing achievements, Julian is a much maligned figure.
0: So, Richard, what you see there is a clear example of where true justice would be going after the real liars and the mm. real real war criminals. To, to this day, they are pursuing the whistleblower. Mm. That's the first time I uh, realised that Dean Yates was an Australian that was the head of Reuters. Uh, and he, you know, he is, is one of these people who's coming out saying, you know, where's our government on this?
1: Mm. Yeah, no, because... Now and then, you know, uh, the last 40, more than 40, probably 50 years, they just, uh, by and large, just toe the line. You know, if the Americans say we're going to... It used to be the British, and then it was the Americans. They say we're going to... They're going to war, therefore we're at war. Mm. You know, and we're the only lackey... Sorry, ally that does that at just every opportunity, just rushes into it. Even the British and the Canadians Mm. have sat... You know, they sat out Vietnam. Um, We didn't... Straight in
0: well there is a theme of this show that uh, we'll come back to on the uh, around the question of colonization um, but i also want to plug right now for those uh, in the melbourne and surrounding region that on the 18th of march coming up which is a saturday there will be a 20th anniversary of the iraq war uh, protest uh, taking place a rally a call for peace truth not war and Two guests that we've had on our program, The Citizen's Insight, will be speakers at that rally. Uh, the former ambassador and diplomat, John Lander, and also the war crimes whistleblower, David McBride, who you just saw. Uh, if you're in the Melbourne area, get along to that rally. It's 1pm on Saturday the 18th, uh, not too far away, at the State Library. Um, so this frightening dynamic, uh, Richard, we... Uh, We're seeing forces right now, as exemplified by these uh, headlines in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, are gunning for war with China, our biggest trading partner. Mm. Um, There's two issues on this I want to cover today. First of all, who's behind these um, maniacal headlines? And secondly, um, you've written an article in this week's Australian Alert Service uh, documenting a case of an Australian citizen... Uh, who uh, his name is Daniel Duggan who is suffering the same kind of treatment vindictive and brutal treatment of the Australian authorities um, that Julian Assange is currently suffering in Britain two Australian citizens one on our own soil that is uh, currently uh, the subject of uh, an attempt by the United States to extradite uh, we'll get into that case in a second but the uh, tell us uh, first of all the uh, who are the forces behind these uh, headlines in the um, in the papers this week?
1: Right, so the, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, the the Nine Network, former Fairfax papers. They're they're presenting this like you know these guys you know they're, as though they had some evidence that China's about to attack us. They're seriously talking about you know Chinese invasions of this that and the other, and you know, pretending like you know you can see the graphic there. Excuse me, the you know the fighter jets coming from the big sinister red China, right on the map. Um, but what they, they've created this story, they've made this up. They've pulled together this team of so-called experts mm-hmm. to to sound this alarm about China. But it's all the same idiots who have been completely wrong about everything um, for, in some cases, over twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we can go through some of the characters involved but um you know they this is this is the media making that as uh, as caitlin johnson um the melbourne writer independent writer who um uh, we've run one of her articles in this week's um alert service but she says them that they are manufacturing the consent for a war with china just like they did with iraq 20 years ago mm-hmm. 20 years ago this month yeah um and so who have we got? We've got, okay, one of the experts is a retired general called Mick Ryan, who, uh, he, you know, regular contributor to um, various of these uh, warmongering, you know, think tanks and publications that they put out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, someone who's frequently comes out with complete nonsense on Twitter and gets challenged by pe- other former military guys who actually know what they're talking about, how he ever got promoted to a general is beyond me. But then I'm told that they're mostly political appointments. Um, but the main the main one. Uh, Can we
0: just step back a second? So Mick Ryan um, is one of these panelists of five. One of these that have five been, uh, assembled for this that have become the uh, case for this article. But the let's just talk a, a minute. Take a minute to talk about Peter Archer. Oh, yeah, the well, journalist who is uh, the guy his who's name convened
1: all, all of this and yes. is the lead writer. Because
0: without Peter Harcher, this whole story wouldn't be run. Mm. Um, who is Peter Harcher?
1: He's a political and international editor for the SMH and the, probably just about the biggest anti-China warmonger in the Australian media today as an individual. Um, and closely tied in, surprise, with this thing called the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue. Where you know you want to talk about foreign interference, mm-hmm. the this this thing um, they they bring over Australian you know up and coming politicians, journalists, you know public figures, and and wine and dine them and and you know offer them all these inside information and and uh, you know indoctrination program basically, mm-hmm. and the the guy who founded that. Um, a fellow called uh, Phil Scanlon, um, well, he was... Uh, <coughs> he has a connection to Channel 9 that owns the Fairfax Papers because um, <coughs> his, uh, he was uh, closely associated with... Uh, he worked for Peter Costello's father-in-law. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> uh, uh, and then, uh, of course, Peter Costello uh you know uh, works he's he's the chairman of channel 9 now uh, he's got a lifelong almost a lifelong association with this guy um, and so uh yeah and Harcher uh, is the you know he's the point man for all of this lunatic uh, China bashing in the in the nine papers
0: well what you said about the uh, manufacturing consent uh. For again back on the Iraq War, without the role of Murdoch and his media empire in the United States and Australia, there wouldn't have been the softening of the population with the you know, the constant barrage of mm. lies about weapons of mass destruction, which has all been proven and shown. But he he ran the um the operation to convince so many Americans that, you know, this was, you know, for freedom and democracy and, mm. and for liberating Iraq and so on. Yeah. So this is a bit a, a repeat playbook. Um, so Peter Harcher, very uh, connected in to the top levels of this warmongering crowd at the in the Murdoch Fairfax media. Is interesting you mentioned the Australian leadership dialogue because uh, as one reaction to these stories that are run in the SMH and the Age was uh, the uh, reaction from Paul Keating, former Prime Minister, who's also criticised the Australian. American leadership dialogue is when Australians go over to America, they drink the Kool-Aid and they come mm. back um, almost brainwashed into all things American yeah, and, yeah, he and said lose the, all sense of independent thought.
1: Yeah, he's lately taken to calling them the Austral-Americans. Right. <laughs> but yeah, he said a few years ago, it's like they, it, the, the alliance with the Americans has become this sort of, a, he said, that it's treated as a sacrament mm. You know, it's, it's become an end in itself that, that, any, that, that is, you know, any means are justified if, as long as it maintains the alliance. So what do we need it for?
0: Well, it strikes me as interesting that a, a number of former prime ministers have criticised how blindly we followed the United States. Most notably was the late Malcolm Fraser mm. with his book Dangerous Allies. You've got Paul Keating. You have had Kevin Rudd to an extent mm. say that, you know, we can't sleepwalk into a war with China. We need to, to make a better effort on diplomacy. Uh, uh, this there's a recognition of former prime ministers speaking out Uh, we put down the challenge and uh, to Albanese why are you waiting to be a former prime minister to go back to you know actually growing a pair and taking on this uh, this uh, ideology
1: yeah yeah if you if you're watching this Mr Albanese I not know that's going to happen but you know don't don't be a former prime minister regretting what you've done. Presuming we live that long,
2: mm.
1: you know. Because if they get a nuclear war started, well, that's it. But um, anything short of that, you know.
0: Well, it's very alarming what you'll cover in a second on our second part of this, um, with the uh, with the case of um, uh, Daniel Duggan, um, because it's exemplary of what everything wrong. That Mark Dreyfus and Albanese is doing at the moment, but just on Paul Keating's quote, um, he was uh, quoted in comment on these articles uh, by Peter Harcher. I believe he said, "I believe that this is unparalleled in modern Australian journalism," uh, and he he goes on to say that the illegitimacy of the publication is manifest even to a moderately informed reader the management and board of Nine Group will have much to answer for should it allow further publication of this wantonly biased inflammatory material. Uh, and he, you know, criticised this panel um, as having no actual substantial uh, amount of um, real in-depth knowledge <coughs> no, of China. No internally. knowledge of
1: China, um, especially its its um, policies on, on things relating to war, hmm. you know, what it will and won't go to war over. And that's... You know, the other thing about this expert panel is the main guy on it, the guy who's quoted the most, is Peter Jennings, the, the head of ASPE for 10 years, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, that is paid, literally takes commissions from the... You know, its, its core funding comes from the Australian Defence Department, Australian, you know, your and my and all our viewers, taxpayer money. But uh, other than that, it takes commissions from Lockheed Martin... Um, Raytheon tales you know uh, uh, boeing and the u s british Japanese Dutch, and other western aligned you know, u s aligned NATO governments mm. to write warmongering trash about China. This is the guy who kept insisting that China hacked the census for weeks in two thousand and sixteen for for a couple of you know went on with it for a couple of weeks after. The the Bureau of Statistics had said, actually, no, it was just a mechanical fault, and nobody hacked us at all. Mm. You know,
0: and the intelligence agencies. The intelligence an investigation. yeah, no, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing to there. it.
1: There's nothing, there. there's nothing there. There was, and but to this day, you still see in newspapers, oh, and something mm. a Chinese cyber attack on the on the census that never yeah. happened. That's who this guy is. Mm-hmm. He said, he's saying now we'll be at war in three years. Well, three four years ago, he said we'd be at war in in three months.
0: Right. So, so three months, <laughs> three years, whatever. You know. Um,
1: so uh, uh, these are not these are not people to be taken seriously.
0: So, so we mentioned before, Mick Ryan. Uh, he's a member of this, uh, a professor professor of the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Again, like ASPI, they have international funding mm. coming from Raytheon, Boeing, mm. Lockheed Martin. Northrop Grumman, the U.S. government. Yeah, so it's a um, it's
1: a Washington think tank, but it's.
0: I note uh, on Aspie that a former Australian diplomat, uh, Bruce Hay, called it the propaganda arm of the CIA and the U.S. government <laughs> in, in Australia. Australia. Yeah. Uh, foreign interference. Anybody? Um, just naming the other three that were on this uh, this five panel: uh, Lavina Lee, uh, who is also from the Center for Strategic and Indo- International Studies, and. From ASPE. Yeah, regular contributor. Um, Alan Finkel, a scientist for the Australian government, and Leslie Seebeck, who is from an, uh, a less known organisation, the National Institute of Strategic Resilience, uh, which we le- know little of. Um, so these five are presenting war with China in three years. Now, I'll quote one part of this, uh, this report, uh, Richard, and if you care to comment, because I've never seen it so blatant. But uh, in the report itself, in The Age, in the Sydney Morning Herald, they are quoted as saying, most important of all is creating a psychological shift. Urgency must replace complacency. The recent decades of tranquility were not the norm in human affairs, but an aberration. Australia's holiday, holiday from history is over.
1: Mm. Uh, engineering a psychological shift. In other words, war propaganda.
0: So they're admitting it blatantly yeah. in their article. We are doing this to convince you and to, to, to use psychological warfare on you. Mm. On Two. behalf of whom? Well, we, we know it. It's, uh, um, it's so blatant that even on the Today program, uh, 2GB uh, talkback host, um, uh, where's his name? Chris O'Keefe. Ah, Chris O'Keefe has had this to say um, on, on TV this week as well.
1: It's alarming though, Chris, isn't
4: it? No, but it's a hysterical, the reporting. Now, I know Nine owns the Sydney Morning Herald on The Age, so they're our colleagues, but the reporting this morning is hysterical. Now, if you've got the Australian Strategic Policy Institute who are the ones saying, oh, well, we could be going to war in three years, well, they're funded by the Australian Defence Force, mm. Lockheed Martin, Talus and Boeing, defence material mm. companies that provide need money to provide defence pers- uh, defense um, hardware to yeah. Australia. So where's the bread buttered here? And I just think that it does Australia no good having discussions like about going to war in three years. It's hysterical. It is over the top. And the CIA, the chief of the CIA said, well, President Xi actually has said, well, get your army prepared to invade Taiwan by 2027. Mm. However, they're thinking to themselves, well, maybe we can't do it. In that same article, it says the President Xi is now considering whether or not it's an achievable outcome, invading Taiwan. None of that's in the newspaper. Mm. But we're talking about going to war in three years. How is that good when someone wakes up in the morning and says, oh no, everybody knows China's a, a threat, a strategic mm. threat, but going to war in three years? Talk about scaring the pants off people for no reason.
2: I mean, it does seem a bit unrealistic. I guess the main point of it is that we aren't prepared. We don't have... You yeah, but don't prepared have... for what? Well, we don't have any of the defence mechanisms necessary. Prepared mechanism for what?
4: Is this going to be Kokoda Mark II? Is that what we're talking about? <laughs> no, one can, no one can explain to me what we're supposed to be prepared mm. for. Mm. I mean, you I guess how big Australia is? You know how hard it would be to attack? There's a lot of people in China. What are we supposed to do? On, go the going to show up in Darwin. Please, come, come on. on. Can we just settle down a bit and have a, an adult conversation about this? <laughs> okay,
5: listen. Just um, Field Marshal Chris and uh, you know Admiral Admiral Sarah. Just, I I think there was a something Chris said. Look, I'm not going to wake up this morning and start saying Australia should be you know, <laughs> gigantically alarmed. It's it's not... We've got to work with China, but we always have to maintain our own national security and our own defence interests. I tell you what I think people want to hear this morning. Uh, is the government uh, doing everything we can in defence and national security? Yes. Are we also trying to maintain uh, constructive bilateral relations with China? Yes. We'll engage where we can, but we'll always... We'll disagree where we must. I, I don't think the speculation about all the other stuff's really going to take us too far, is it? Do you it?
4: think it's hysterical, Bill?
5: Ah, uh, listen, I, um, I certainly don't think it's helpful to speculate about, you know, the dramatic headlines in the paper. I don't see where that gets us, frankly.
0: Mm. Well said.
2: Well said. Oh, wow. Agreement. I like yeah. it. <laughs> Let's have more of it. Right. All right, Bill, Chris, thanks so much for your time today.
0: So there, so Channel 9 can, say, can see blatantly that this is hysterics.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, Channel 9, whose company publishes those newspapers, as
0: he acknowledges. Uh, mm. in that clip but you know come on um yep so that uh richard um if if you're buying into this stuff viewers uh i have to say please reflect the military industrial complex wants you to be uh, afraid of china thinking of an uh, an invasion next tuesday uh who's funding this psychological warfare. Mm. They admit it, and if you follow the chain, it goes back to the US military-industrial complex. Yeah. For the be- benefit of newer viewers, Richard, what is the military-industrial complex?
1: So this is what the uh, World War II general and then President American President um, Dwight Eisenhower warned about in his farewell speech way back in the 50s. He said, you know, we must be on guard against... Uh, the acquisition of unwarranted power by a military-industrial complex, uh, uh, you know, all the war industries that weren't turned back to peaceful purposes. Instead, they decided, well, we just need more wars so we can sell more military equipment. We And they lobby, bribe politicians, you know, campaign funding, all the rest of it. They uh, And they hire propagandists like this to drum up Fear drum up support for war, so that uh, you know they get to sell more stuff they get to, to Raytheon gets to make more four hundred thousand dollar missiles to shoot down Chinese weather balloons, like what happened the other week, you know u s dollars that's like six hundred of ours um, and so that's what it is. It's this permanent war machine that profits from human misery, including the you know if you're in australia if, if you're in Australia right now and you're struggling to make ends meet. This is part of the reason why, because these, because, you know, all these billions of dollars that we that we supposedly have to spend on junk military equipment from these guys to defend against a China threat that doesn't exist.
0: Mm. Well, um, and when that's called out, um, we can see the vicious side of this. Um, coming to your article now um, on uh, in this week's Australian Alert Service, if you have. Uh, haven't yet got a free copy, go to the website and um, you can get one there. Um, Details on screen. Uh, Richard, you wrote an article this week called Albanese Government Tortures Australian Citizens to Please Washington. So on the theme of Julian Assange you heard about before, um, this relates to a case of Daniel Duggan. Uh, Tell me about, you know, from the top down, um, who is Daniel (laughs) Duggan and why is this important to note?
1: Okay, so this is a guy who you know, he he's a he's a former American citizen, naturalized Australian. <clears throat> he was a United States Marine Corps fighter pilot um, from the mid to late '80s until um, around 2002. He retired, moved to Australia, became a Australian citizen in 2012, renounced his U.S. citizenship. So he's um, not a dual citizen. Um, none of that particularly matters for the case as we'll go through, but just to note it as a fact. Um, so uh, this guy was arrested in uh, October uh, in his hometown of Orange in New South Wales, um, up in the hills. Nice place for those who don't know it. Um, but uh, on a sealed indictment, on a, uh, an extradition request from the United States um, or a, a provisional request they hadn't actually made the charges known they just said hey can you arrest this guy so we can charge him with something so of course they did the federal police arrest him throw him in the clink um, goes to court the same day which means you know it's all prearranged. gets put in a maximum security prison as a high risk you know as a security risk to the to the to the the jailers and the other inmates which is completely ridiculous. The man's never... Mind
0: you, yeah, you, this guy has never had a criminal offence has no or a charging record, record offence no, at nothing, all.
1: Nothing, nothing ever. <laughs> nothing um,
0: ever, and he's put straight into maximum security the same day, or, um, or Shortly well.
1: thereafter, he goes to court and then gets... He's, um, as, uh, as of the other day, the last report I saw, he was in Silverwater, but he's going to be transferred to the Supermax in Goulburn the, the maximum security jail in Australia where they put all of the um, irredeemable, you know, unrepentant mass murderers, terrorists and all of that sort of thing. And pedophiles. Pedophiles, serial killers. You know, they're, they're, um, they're, mm-hmm. throw, they're throwing him in with those guys when he hasn't even been convicted of anything. So it, um, when they unsealed the indictment, which is like
0: what happens has happened to Julian Assange, who's still sitting in Belmarsh prison yeah, yeah, in the UK, yeah. their supermax prison, uh, yeah, exactly under squalid conditions with health problems in the works. Yeah, um, there's but an element in your article where you talk about how this is deliberate um, to break down the psychology. Uh, yeah. To at a time when you know he is supposed to be, you know, given presumed innocent until proven guilty, afforded the ability to present a defence yeah, or yeah. or to consult with his lawyers. Um, yeah. So he's being held
1: yeah. under conditions where he says it's almost impossible for him to arrange, you know, to, to have the appropriate uh, time and confidential communications with his lawyers to to plan his defence, mm. which everyone's supposed to be entitled to. Um, doesn't get to see his family. They, you know, they're, they're an eight-hour return trip. Orange is four hours up in the hills um, from Sydney um, on a good day, and uh, denied proper treatment for a prostate condition. Uh, it's a benign condition, but still, very, you know, uncomfortable sort of a thing mm-hmm. to have to deal with. The guy's in his fifties, you know.
0: Um, so this, co- sorry, th- go ahead. Uh, I was going to say this is this started out as a sealed indictment. But yeah. then uh, details of the accusations have come forth. He is alleged, uh, just after he finished as a, U- a U.S. Marine pilot, he goes in as a private practice, private business, a flight instructor. He does mm. a time. Uh, he does from 2017 to 2020. He works in China as an aviation consultant. That winds up. He ends up uh, being accused of training Chinese military pilots. Mm out of a South African flight school. And yeah, the yeah. story first emerges uh, late last year, I understand, through the British press.
1: Yeah, well, they... Um, uh, well, I mean, they... Uns- the, the British... The, the week he was arrested, the British started this whole flap about Western... Retired Western pilots training Chinese, you know, training the enemy when they're clearly not the enemy. You know, we're not at war with China or anything. Um, but, yeah, so they passed the new law... They said, "Well, look, none of these guys have. D- they had th- they, they had a list of thirty of their pilots. They passed a new law that said this will be illegal from now on to do this without permission. So you'd better cut it out." Um, in Australia, and this is very important. In Australia, that is not as of now, let alone previously, it's not illegal at all. And um, so, yeah, the uh, when the uh, when the indictment was unsealed, this turns out to be charges not related to Mr. Duggan's time in China, but as you said, to this uh, flight school in South Africa in 2011-2012, um, training uh, pilots from all over the place. It's a test flying academy, so and a specialised training institute for test know, pilots. Important
0: to he was a permanent resident in Australia from 2002 um, yeah. and he got Australian citizenship in 2012. In
1: 2012, yeah. So around the end of this period when he's um, working in South Africa.
0: Um, An important point there, you said um, under no current laws in Australia yeah. is it has he committed a crime mm. in South Africa training Chinese pilots, alleged Chinese military yeah. pilots. There's no crime being breached in Australia.
1: Yeah, so what the Americans say he's done is breach the conditions of what's called the International Trade in Arms Regulations, which is part of their Defence Exports Control Act, um, so basically means that they need um, permission to provide military equipment or services to foreign countries now uh which supposedly training these Chinese pilots would breach um, because they taught them among other things, how to land on the deck of an aircraft carrier um, Now, Mr. Duggan and his lawyers say that he actually didn't breach that rule, but in either case. It doesn't matter for Australia's purposes because Australia's extradition treaty with the United States, which we signed back in the 80s, it's limited by a principle called dual criminality where uh, unless what the person is accused of is a crime in both countries, you don't get extradited. You can't be extradited. And so there's a related charge of money laundering that seems to be what they've hung this all on. But um, as best... Um no one, no one talks about what money he's supposed to have laundered. And the only conclusion you can draw from my reading or anyone else who's commented on this, people more qualified than me, saying that this is just, you know, it seems to be a, a, charge, a technicality because they're declaring that what he did was illegal and therefore, you know, um, this conspiracy to launder money was just him and the other guys getting paid for the work they were doing and or importing this... Old plane from America to conduct the training with, which is—it's admitted that that Duggan himself didn't do that. It was other people involved in the training school who purchased that plane. So uh, there is no crime. Conspiracy to commit a non-crime is not a crime, Mm. right? It's a business plan. And so, under Australian under that extradition, extradition treaty, this guy cannot be extradited for something that's not a crime under Australian law. In the meantime, what is Australian law, because it's international conventions that we've signed on to, is the international conventions on human rights, um, including potentially the, um, the uh, provisions on torture, because psychological torture is included in that, which this guy's being subjected to at the behest of the Americans by this spineless government, that won't stand up for the rights of Australian citizens, even here, let alone abroad, like Julian Assange.
0: Well, that's uh, that's an important point. So, I want, did want to ask that question: What has the Australian government done in this case with Daniel Duggan since you know the the first request for charges? You said before he was put in supermax prison, yeah, a two yeah. by four cell. Yeah. Um, well,
1: his lawyer, uh, his lawyers, have said, well, they can't figure out. They're trying to figure out where this. In where this classification came from, whose advice this was given on, because it wasn't the Australian Federal Police. Um, they have communications from um, the Attorney General's Office, who, who you know, Mark Dreyfus, who accepted this um, extradition or this request for an extradition proceedings. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears> they <throat> said, so, well, where did it come from? So. Um, The only conclusion that they can draw, uh, because it's being kept secret uh, under these national security provisions, well, that implies that this is coming from somewhere else, one of the Five Eyes partners, probably America. So they filed a complaint with the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security. Um, They filed complaints about his treatment in prison with the UN Human Rights Committee, um, now unfortunately the 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 IGIS is under-resourced to hell um they're about um, they're about 30 people short of of what they need in their office to operate effectively this is a group that's supposed to have supposed oversight to be of the intelligence of, agencies. of
0: overreach by us by agencies yeah um, chronically understaffed
1: yeah and the and that, i'm sure that's not an accident but the uh and the uh, the Human Rights Committee, well, they can make they can make findings and make requests, but they can just be ignored, like Australia's been ignoring them for 20 years, nearly, on uh, our horrific um, treatment of refugees. So, um, you know, if the government doesn't grow a backbone, this guy's just going to be left to suffer, just like other Australian citizens who have been arrested. You know, Mamdu Habib, the Egyptian Australian guy who was arrested in Pakistan taken to Egypt by the CIA and tortured with ASIO's knowledge and complicity for a year, then locked up in Guantanamo.
0: And then released, and then without, released charge. without
1: charge. And then released without charge. David Hicks, who, uh, the Australian who was arrested in um, uh, Kashmir, I think it was, um, or he trained in Kashmir and he went to Afghanistan, whatever it was, but he was, he was arrested, um, You know, called a terrorist, for trying to help the people that a few years before we were being told were the good guys, right, the Kashmiri groups that were allied with Al-Qaeda. Um, and so, uh, and then ended up taking a plea bargain after he'd been locked in Guantanamo for years um, that even the US Supreme Court said was garbage, the whole, procedi- the whole proceedings was garbage. Um, and so, you know, they, there's a track record of um, Australian governments from both sides of the aisle just... Just caving to the Americans on this stuff, and it's not acceptable.
0: Well, it's clear. I mean, it's a form of torture, and what's what's horrific about it is it's happening on our own soil, yeah. um, at the behest of someone in secret requesting this through the Five Eyes alliance. And mm. no, uh, the government has admitted you no know, messages to uh, Attorney General Dreyfus' office, and the government said we don't consider him to be a security risk. Mm. I mean, uh, with no criminal record prior. Except what what uh, the unifying force is is this this point about the hysteria around China uh, mm. and make an example of these people um, it's exactly as Assange is suffering in the UK at the moment so uh, this has to be called out uh, we'll keep uh, we'll keep people in the loop on this but um, whenever you've got a spare minute when you're not doing calls advocating for a postal bank or uh, mobilising or writing submissions and all the things we ask you to do, whenever you um, have a spare second, call the government, demand that they deliver on releasing Assange and um, having him return to Australia, make the representation of the United States uh, and uh, also condemn this type of treatment of an Australian citizen um, if if we believe in justice, which is, you know, innocent until proven guilty, we wouldn't mm. be torturing people like this.
1: Yeah. I mean, even if he was guilty of everything they've charged him with, it still doesn't worry, warrant any of this. Mm. Mm. It's just disgusting.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Richard. So, uh, moving on uh, to our second subject, and uh, again, you know, exemplary of the problem in Australia's economy is a certain form of colonisation. We've seen it with the Five Eyes and the military moving in, infesting our media, creating hysteria about China, uh, and then you have the, uh, the, inter, uh, the interoperable and interchangeable forces of uh, Australia's military with the US military, B-52s in Darwin. Uh, this sense that anything the Americans want to, to drag us into their geopolitical games... We uh, we have a government that accepts it. How is that not other than colonization, which mm-hmm. we, we we've been used to reading about in the history books? We you know w- w- you know white Europeans colonized Australia, uh, took over the place. Uh, you know various empires uh, colonized South America, and we always learn about this as being previous centuries, but it's happening in our back, backyard right now. Yeah. Um, there's another element to that colonisation which, of course, is, is, is critical. We always talk about here is, is the question of banking. So, second subject today is, yes, the government should, be, should do banking. Uh, uh, and that obviously alludes to the fact that years ago, Joe Hockey and others uh, re- keep repeating this mantra. We had it in Parliament the other mm-hmm. day when Robbie and I were there uh, from David Littleproud basically saying, no, we can't go back to a yeah. system where governments are involved in banking.
1: Yep. Yeah, that was Joe Hockey, 2014. If there's one thing we've learned, Mr Speaker, is that governments should not be involved in banking.
0: And uh, ironically, so so soon after the global financial crisis brought about by the uh, end of certain regulations (laughs) and um, uh, by the private banks completely destroying the world economy. Well... um, What's been happening in the media the last few um, weeks, uh, s- especially since we got up our inquiry into uh, the regional bank branch closures, uh, Richard, is more calls for uh, for uh, this discussion around a public postal bank alternative or a government bank alternative. I want to play just a short, uh, well, just refer back to, um, th- it's on the, um, on the Twitter feed and, and on uh, 3AW's website. But last night uh, at uh, primetime 5pm uh, radio, Tom Elliott on 3AW radio interviewed our research director, Robert Barwick, on the matter of a post office bank and uh, highlighted in that coverage that the Citizens Party is, is been integral to pushing this idea. But then he highlighted, um, Tom Elliott uh, highlighted, that to others, uh, especially... Former politicians and former bankers, uh, you know, prominent bankers such as John Dalson and former, you know, Liberal leader John Elliott have floated this idea. Um, yeah, Robbie, John
1: Elliott, who was Tom Elliott's father.
0: Yes, yes. Um, the, I think president of the Liberal Party for a time and mm. uh, quite a prominent figure. Um, and then Robbie piped in to say, look, there's also organisations like the Chief Union that represents uh, the postal workers the communications electrical plumbing union so which have put out reports like the per capita uh, report in (coughs) 2014 uh, advocating for a postal bank so we have examples across the spectrum where this is getting more airtime especially after the sale hearings that happened last week which we reported on i wanted to just also highlight something uh, very powerful um uh, we've we had another rate rise this week, uh, uh, another 0.25% rate rise by the Reserve Bank. So this, you know, cascade of pain for borrowers and and, and mortgage holders and mm. debt holders is getting worse. Uh, and what is that, What is their claim that this is going to reduce uh, inflation?
1: Mm. Yeah, by De- squashing demand. And you know, only half, less than half of it's come through the pipe yet. You know, in terms of. Um, Mortgage payment increases, um, the cost of living, of course, has gone up. And even Moody's Investor Services, one of the big ratings agencies, has just put out a report on Australia saying that, um, as Martin North, who we work with, um, uh, Digital Finance Analytics, pointed out months ago, um, a couple of months ago, even though house prices are falling, they're still becoming less affordable because people are spending more on essential items and can't uh, can't qualify for as large mortgages as they used to. Um, because the interest rates have gone up. So mm-hmm. people are priced out of housing worse than they've ever been, even though the prices are coming down. Mm-hmm. And the Reserve Bank has just got this one blunt instrument that they keep, this one hammer that they keep bashing everybody with. And it's not working, and they admit it's not working, three quarters three quarters of the case. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. Uh, and someone who's taken aim at that in a big way, uh, both the Greens Party this week, Nick McKim, Senator Nick McKim, uh, calling for a halt, Uh, to these these rises um, in light of the fact it isn't working uh, and it won't work. Uh, And then, uh, surprisingly, Senator Gerard Rennick from the Liberal National Party in Queensland, uh, uh, it's a rare occasion when you see him agreeing with something the Greens say, but he got up in Parliament to say this um, and he talked about the need for a completely different approach to uh, addressing the inflationary problems uh, and it's a question of supply, the question of productivity. And he called it the Sovereign 7, but uh, how much it parallels our campaign for a national bank, a public bank, is, is, uh, is great to see. So I want to play this two-minute clip with what Senator Gerard Rennick had to say on the need for a national public
2: bank. They only deal with, and I've asked the IBA this myself, they only deal with the demand side. Right, what we've got here in Australia at the moment is, is that we've had supply shocks. So people often think that inflation is caused only by too much demand. That's not the case. And, you know, if too much demand is trying to make ends meet, well I'm sorry, but that's not too much demand. That's a lack of productivity in our own economy because we don't build enough nation building infrastructure to actually provide essential services at affordable rates. and What we really need to do in this country is stop being afraid of building infrastructure, in particular what I call the sovereign seven, which are dams, uh, rail, road, power stations, telecommunications, um, and airports and ports. And Those are the things that if we supply more of those things through quantitative easing, through quantitative easing, and now everyone, you know, I was brainwashed. It took me 30 years to unbrainwash myself because I had this rubbish forced down my throat at university. There is nothing wrong. We see companies do it all the time. They issue shares, they issue equity, they issue new equity to build a new mine. As a country, we can issue new equity to build infrastructure. It's debit asset credit equity. Or if you want to call it, you can create an infrastructure bank. Uh, here at the federal government level and they can lend to the state governments and then the state governments pay interest back back to the National Infrastructure Bank and then the National Infrastructure Bank can pay dividends back through to the federal government, which will basically be a form of raising revenue, adding more infrastructure and more supply to the economy, which will push down the prices of essential services. and That's not just good for the cost of living, that will make it more competitive for our businesses to compete with other businesses in the world.
0: So, Richard, what do you think? Uh, can we trust the Reserve Bank of Australia to handle this problem of the economy at the moment?
1: Well, not as it's currently run, I mean, and that's, um, as we've reported, um, as Lisa Bowick has reported in the alert service over the last um, you know, several weeks, the, this whole thing about austerity, because that's what this is, that's what these interest rate rises are designed to do by their own admission, to crush demand you know, make people pay more for things or or spend less by not buying things, including essentials, um, this is, it's not the only tool available to them, but it's the only one that they've convinced themselves they're allowed to use. And that goes for the government as well as the Reserve Bank. And this all comes down from the, uh, you know, even World War One era, but through the interwar period, um, this thing called the Bank for International Settlements that we've talked about on the show before, the The Central Bank of Central Banks, who it's actually a script written by the banks uh, by the City of London and the the Bank of England, but they set up this thing as a supposedly impartial arbiter of war reparations and debt settlements and things like that, Mm -hmm. Um, which uh, was supposed to get shut down after the Second World War because it was helping the Nazis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Half Mm -hmm. of its board, original board, were Nazis, Um, but here it is still today, and that's. That's largely what 's uh as I say writing this script for the these austerity policies around the world these neoliberal as they call it ideas that um, <clears throat> you know that governments have to be hands off and that and that uh, the private sector has to do everything and the government should just smooth the way
0: well there's a like that. A, there's a collective amnesia amongst mm. policymakers and politicians today they they talk about. Government having no role in banking, as though this has been a um, uh, you know some kind of sacrament, or yeah, yeah, uh, like it
1: was like it was handed to Moses on a tablet. Yeah,
0: and and what's interesting is if if we were to to move ourselves into the perspective of previous um, you know generations, I mean, Gerard Rennick today wouldn't be uh, far removed from any of the policies that were advocated by. Uh, previous generations, like Ben Chifley, like John Mm. Curtin, um, or in the US example, Abraham Lincoln or Alexander Hamilton. Or Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, and Elisa, in her series of of, uh, uh, reports in the Australian Alert Service, has shown that this was adopted by Germany and other protectionist nations in in previous centuries to Mm. build up a sovereign capability. Yeah,
1: every country, including Australia, that's ever gone ahead has done it that way, not the way that we're doing things Mm. now. Mm. And you know, as far as governments not being involved in banking, well, for most of our history as a, as a, you know, the Federation, the Commonwealth of Australia, we had a public bank from 1912 up until they privatised it in the 90s. Mm. You know, over 80 years worth of governments being involved in banking and it worked. Mm. I mean, think about how much better things, you know, there were still massive problems, mm. you know. And, um, that's,
0: and that's where Paul Keating really got it wrong. Yeah, that was, that was
1: <laughs> yeah, as we were saying earlier... Um, yeah, there's a lot. To, uh, there's a we have a lot of issues with Mr. Keating. He's pretty decent on foreign policy, terrible on economic policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But and th- and that was what they did. They, Labor and Liberal, they privatized the Commonwealth Bank, and since then it's been open slathered by private banks with no government backstop there for people to go to if they you know uh, that <clears throat> just want somewhere just safe to keep their money that's guaranteed by the government. They don't want to get into investments and this and that. Um, and it yeah. forced the private banks to keep their noses clean, you know, otherwise they just lose all their business. We had that for 80-something years, uh-huh. and now they say, oh, no, it's this, it's like we said, you know, like it was carved in stone, that governments cannot be involved in banking. No,
0: it's, it's definitely been a brainwashing process. And in Gerard Rennick's speech, he said, you know, I had to undo that damage that was done to me in university. In university yeah. <laughs> so if he can do it, you can too, and and, and your neighbours can as well. Uh, uh, well... It brings us to the end of the program today uh for those watching um on this question of a public bank uh, please remember we've got until the end of this month to put in a submission to the senate rural and regional affairs and transport committee this is on the question of regional bank closures uh, the details for making a submission are on our website um, and on screen we need to advocate for a public government bank option as an answer to all of this These private banks shutting down access to services and cash. Uh, Reverse the colonisation, the the neoliberal and warmongering colonisation of the country. Richard, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, Join us next week for the Citizens Report. Thank you.